All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Valley Creek Church. I am so glad that you are here with us. And we want to welcome all of our campuses, whether you are in Denton, Flower Mound, Louisville, the venue, watching online, wherever you are in the world. Can we all just welcome each other together? We are so glad that you are here with us. And whether this is your first time with us, maybe you haven't been here in a while, maybe you've left and recently come back, maybe you're here with us every single weekend, it really doesn't matter. I am genuinely glad that you are here with us because this is a celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We get to celebrate who he is and what he did. And I mean, I'm just saying, anybody that can predict their own death and resurrection, that person is worthy of some celebration. Would you agree with that? So, so kind of what I want to say to you is welcome to the party. Because that's what Easter is. It's a party. And some of us need to change our thinking about what Easter is all about. And I realize it's an old familiar story. And yet there's something in us that's drawn to it. It's this old familiar story, and yet there's almost like something supernatural about it that draws us back year after year. Well, maybe it's because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says God has put eternity in the hearts of man. See, most of us sitting in this room, we've heard this story a thousand times in a hundred different ways. Like, we're really familiar with the cross. We have cross collages on our walls at home, and We wear crosses on our jewelry and we get crosses tattooed on our bodies and we see them on buildings and posters and art. We see the crazy guy in the end zone with the John 316 sign. You know what I mean? I mean, we we see it everywhere. And yet I think we've missed the significance of it. The great danger of familiarity is that familiarity causes you to lose your awe and your wonder. Familiarity causes you to take the spectacular for granted. Like in in my own life, a few weeks ago, I took my kids for a bike ride. And we have this normal loop that we go on all the time. And normally Colleen and I walk and the two kids will ride. And it's kind of the same loop. We go out of our driveway, through our neighborhood, and then across a busy road. And then we cross this creek. And then there's a path that we take kind of through some woods. And then around this new neighborhood and past the soccer fields. And then we come back home. Well, for whatever reason, this day I was busy and I didn't really want to go. And I was kind of in a rush, but my kids really wanted to go. And so I said, okay, we'll go. So they got on their bikes and got their stuff. We start going. We go out the driveway, through the neighborhood, across the busy road. And as soon as we get to the creek, my kids look at the creek and they go, oh my goodness, it's a waterfall. Bikes down, helmets off, backpack off. And they go running down into the waterfall. They're splashing and playing and throwing rocks. Dad, this is amazing. It's a waterfall. There's never a waterfall here. You know? And I'm like, come on, guys, can we please keep going? But it's a waterfall. Five minutes later, they finally come out, helmet on, backpack back on, bike back up. And we start riding. And I kid you not, we go maybe 30 seconds. And all of a sudden they go, look at the ducks. Bike down, helmet off, backpack off. And the two of them go running over here and try to catch and chase these ducks. And they fly away. And so they come back over, helmet on, backpack on, back on the bike. We start riding. Maybe we go another minute. And then all of a sudden they see heavy machinery bulldozers and backhoes that were doing some construction. Oh my goodness! Bike down, helmet off, backpack off. They go scrambling up on these things. Dad, the door of this one's open. It's like I'm driving. Take a picture and put it on Instagram. This is amazing! You know? And finally they get off, helmet on, backpack on. We get it back on the bike. We're pedaling down. All of a sudden they stop. They're like, it's coyote poop! Oh my goodness! What did the coyote eat? And we... 
We keep going. They see an ant pile and they poke the ant pile and in the sagar fields and every step we took, they were full of awe and wonder. And about halfway through that experience, I realized this. I have lost my awe and wonder. I'm not really inspired or impressed by anything anymore. And that's really sad. And I bet the same was true for you. We've lost our wonder. There's something about growing up as an adult and walking through this life that causes it to just like fade away. Like we're not in awe and wonder of our relationships, our marriage and our kids and our parents and our family. We, we've lost our awe and wonder of creation, the sun and the moon and the stars and the plants and the animals. We've lost our awe and wonder of the blessings in our lives. And let me just go ahead and prove it to you. Like when was the last time you were full of awe and wonder over flying in a plane? Like you realize you get in a metal tube and you go hundreds of miles an hour. You defy the laws of gravity. You go 30,000 feet in the sky and you can get on the other side of the country in like just a few hours. What used to take 10 months by horse and buggy, you can now do in a few hours. And all we do is complain that we were 15 minutes late. I'm just saying we've lost the awe and the wonder. Or how about our country? Thousands of years, billions of people that have lived on this earth, they would give anything to live here. I mean, today you woke up, you pursued your destiny, you went where you wanted, did what you wanted, made your own choices. You are free to come and worship here today without any persecution. And we've lost the wonder of that because we just complain about what the government is or isn't doing. Or how about this, our cell phones? Like you realize when you're talking to someone on your cell phone, you are talking to someone in another state through a piece of plastic, people. <laughs> that is pretty awe-inspiring. Wouldn't you agree with that? And yet we just sit there and complain that our coverage isn't great and that our call got dropped and the internet is too slow. I'm just saying, if you look at our life, we have lost our awe and wonder. And I'm afraid that we've lost our awe and wonder over Jesus. I think we've become so familiar with Easter as a religious experience that we come to and have to do year after year that we've lost what it's all about. But in 2 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul, he writes and he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. This is Paul who writes most of the complicated theology in the New Testament. He says, let me sum it all up for you. He says, don't lose your awe and wonder of Jesus. He says, don't lose the simplicity of the life you have in Christ. Because that's what happened to Eve. If you remember the story in the beginning of creation, God made Adam and Eve and he put them in the Garden of Eden and everything was very good. And God walked with them in the cool of the day and God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the tree of life. And he told them, he said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. He said, I just don't want you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In fact, I would prefer if you primarily ate from the tree of life. I know it's simple, but it has everything that you need. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because God didn't want them to spend their lives defining, judging, or performing. But you know what happened. Satan came slithering into the garden and he said to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from that tree? Satan's oldest trick is to get you to question God's voice in your life. Did, did God really say he loves you? Did God really say that he won't forsake you? Did God really say he will forgive you of everything, including that thing? And then he says to Eve, he says, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree because he knows if you do, you will be like him. The only problem is Eve was already more like God than she would ever be. And in that moment, she forsook, forsook the simplicity of the tree of life and she decided to complicate her life 
and ours by eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, 6 says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She took what she wanted and she lost what she needed. She tried to get in the world what she already had in God and she tried to gain through performance what she had freely received by grace. And we have been doing the same thing ever since. And it says her eyes are open and she realizes she is naked, afraid and ashamed. And so are we. And so we spend our lives covering, hiding, and running. But in a complicated world, Jesus has come to simplify things. And you say, what is this simplicity in Jesus? Well, it's the familiar story, but it's profound in every way. And every detail of it matters. Jesus came to be the final sacrifice once and for all. And you know how the story goes. It says they whipped him. Well, by his stripes, we are healed of our sicknesses and our diseases. And then they ripped off his robe and they put a scarlet robe on him. Scarlet. And to represent the stains and the shame of our life. You know the stains and the shame, like the ones that you can't seem to get rid of? Like no matter how hard you try to scrub them out of your mind or your past, you, you yourself, you, you just never can get rid of them to clean them up. Like that abortion, those failed marriages, the secrets that we keep, the things that have been done to us, the things that we've done. Well, he took the scarlet robe so we could have his robe of righteousness. And then they put a crown of thorns on his head, thorns to represent the curse that Adam and Eve set in motion, that this is a world that bites, pricks, claws, 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 scratches, fights you back, and by the sweat of your brow, you have to strive and struggle through it. But when they put the thorns on his head, Jesus became the curse for us so that we might have his blessing. And when the crown of thorns mingled with the blood of his brow, he took our striving and gave us his rest. Then they nailed him to a tree because someone had to pay for what we had done. They put a hard spear in his soft heart so your hard heart could become soft. And then he said profound things like, I thirst. He became thirsty so you could be satisfied. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was forsaken by the Father so you'll never have to be. The Father became a distant God to Jesus so he could become a loving God to you. And then he's hanging there and there's criminals on the right and left side of him. And he looks at the thief on the cross and he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like, catch it. He stops dying for a moment to forgive one more person. He's like, he's like, I'm dying, I'm dying. Pause. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay, you got it? Good. Okay, play. Back to it. Ah, that's what he did. Because he so badly wanted to save everyone. And then he said, it is finished. No more work, no more striving, no more performing. And notice he said, it is finished, not I'm working on it. Every detail of the story matters and is a part of our redemption process. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus laid down his life for us. But that's not where the story ends. He didn't stay on the cross. In fact, the Bible tells us that if all Jesus did was die on the cross and never rose again from the grave, that it would be pointless. We would still be in our sins. We would still be dead people. But that's not what happened. He died. He was buried in a tomb. And three days later, he did rise again from the grave. And just like we are overly familiar with the cross, I am convinced we are equally unfamiliar with the empty tomb. And because we don't embrace its simplicity like Eve, we are deceived and it's kept us from the life that we have in Jesus. Are you with me on that so far? Okay. In John chapter 20, I think this is the greatest story that explains the simplicity of the tomb, which is part of the simplicity, the awe and wonder of what Jesus did for us. He died on the cross, was buried in the tomb. Three days later, Jesus and his disciples and some of the women followers, they come to check it out. Well, it says the stone was rolled away and Jesus' body is gone. 
And so they're confused. They're heartbroken. They don't know what's happening. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes because the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. Jesus' body is gone. But Mary stood out the side the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look in the tomb and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. So catch it. Stone is rolled away. The tomb is empty. Mary walks inside and she finds two angels, one sitting at the head and one sitting at the foot of where Jesus' body would have been. Now, let me try to explain this to you so you can grasp the profoundness and the wonder of what Jesus really did. In the Old Testament, there was something called the Ark of the Covenant. If you've ever seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? It's this box that represented God's presence among his people. A wooden box covered with gold. It was a type or a shadow of Jesus showing his humanity and his deity. And the lid of the box had two angels on it, one at the head and one at the foot. And in between those two angels was called the mercy seat. And the priest would sprinkle blood on that and it would represent the forgiveness of the people's sins. And inside that box there were three things. One was there were the stone tablets of the law. The Ten Commandments that were written on stone. And if you've ever seen the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charleston Heston, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These stone tablets where God with his finger wrote the Ten Commandments, the law, his standard of how people were supposed to live. The second thing was there was a jar of manna. The bread from heaven that God brought every day for 40 days of wandering the Israelites in the wilderness. And then there was Aaron's priest that budded to show that was God's appointed authority over the people. So three things. The law represented our rebellion against God's standards. The manna represented our resistance or our rejection of his provision. And then the staff represented that we rejected God's authority and leadership in our life. And so God said, I want you to take all three of those and I want you to put them in the box and then I want you to put the mercy seat on top of it with these two angels. And then every year and only once a year, the high priest would come in and he would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and then when God looked down from heaven, he would see the shedding of blood which would be covering the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, as a sign of the forgiveness of people's sins. He couldn't see their rebellion because it was covered by the blood of the mercy seat. Does that make sense to you? The only problem was is you had to offer it year after year after year after year. Say it with me. After year. And every time you offered it, it was a reminder of your sins. It was like no matter how hard the Jewish people tried, they like never could measure up. They couldn't keep the standard. There was always a skeleton in the closet. Like you never really wanted to look in that box because like, like put that thing back down. I don't want to be reminded of what I've done. Do you ever feel like that? Like no matter how hard you try, you can't measure up? Like there's always a skeleton in the closet somewhere in your life and you really don't want people to pull that thing up because you don't really want to be reminded yourself and you don't want other people to see? That's how they lived. And that's all they knew. And so when Mary walks in and she sees where Jesus' body would have been laid and an angel at the head and an angel at the foot, it was a picture that Jesus came to be the mercy seat for us, God's presence among us and the forgiveness of our sins, but he is a better mercy seat. I know some of you are sitting here, you're thinking, bro, what does this have to do with Easter? Everything. Let me try to explain it to you. The, te- the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament, they would go in, the stone tablets were covered, on the mercy seat they would sprinkle the blood. Year after year after year, their sins were always covered, they were never cleansed. So there was always a reminder because the stone tablets were always there and they always had to be covered. Then Jesus came. 
He died on a cross, and after he was dead, they buried him in a tomb made of stone. Stone is a picture of the law. It is a picture of the Ten Commandments. And so when they buried Jesus in a tomb made of stone, which is incredibly significant, they didn't bury him in a hole, they didn't bury him in mud, they didn't bury him in a pile of leaves, they buried him in a tomb made of stone. And they put him in the tomb, and when they rolled the stone over the front of that grave, it was a picture as if the law had won. The law had been hidden all these years under the mercy seat, but now the law was exposed, and it looked like for three days like the law had won. The law was judging Jesus on our behalf, and what you have to remember is God's commandments, they're not flexible. They don't give, they don't help, they just demand. And it exacted its payment and its penalty is death. You break one, you break them all. The consequence is death. And so when that stone is rolled over Jesus, the law is judging him on our behalf because Jesus didn't just die for you, he died as you. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we become the righteousness of God. So the law is judging Jesus on our behalf. And when he's in this stone tomb, he is separated from God because that's what the law does. It separates us from him because we can't keep it. So it looked like the law had won for three days as it judged Jesus. And then Mary walks and she comes to the tomb and it says the stone has been rolled away. The grave is empty because Jesus defeated death. The stone has been rolled away because Jesus fulfilled the law and it no longer has authority over our lives. The stone has been rolled away because our sins are no longer covered. They are cleansed once and for all. The stone has been rolled away because mercy triumphs over judgment and grace is superior to the law. The stone has been rolled away. Okay? That's why Hebrews 8.12 says, I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. He doesn't cover them. He cleanses them. That's why 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us. We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Or Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law. The stone has been rolled away so that there be me righteousness for everyone who believes. God wrote the stone tablets of the law with his finger. And now here at the resurrection, God, by his grace, rolled away the stone with his finger. Because he says it's done. Jesus paid for everything that has ever been required from you. The rebellion, the rejection, the resistance. He's the perfect mercy seat because he doesn't cover. He cleanses. He doesn't hide. He removes. That's why Romans 6 says sin is no longer your master. Like you don't have to live this way anymore because you are not under the law. You are now under grace because Jesus went under the law so you could live under his grace. Which means there's no more skeletons in the closet. You don't have to hide. You don't have to run. You don't have to cover. This is why in Luke 24, the same account, when they get to the empty tomb, there's an angel there. And the angel says, hey, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Like he ain't here. And we read that story and we're like, yeah, that's dumb. Why would you look for a live person in the grave? That's part of it. But the angel's also saying this. Why are you looking for life among dead things? Why are you coming back to the law? Why are you coming back to the Ten Commandments, to religion that's already been rolled away and paid in full? Why are you trying to get through performance what you have freely received by grace? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, choose the tree of life. Because grace provided everything the law demanded and our hope is not in religion. Our hope is in Jesus. All that ever has been or ever will be required from you has been paid in full. Jesus went under the law so you could be cleansed by his grace. 
And if you can catch it, the law was covered in the, ten, in the, in the Ark of the Covenant. It was exposed when it was there at Jesus' tomb, and then it was removed, rolled away. Our sins are covered because we hide them. And when we have the courage to finally expose them to Jesus... In him they are rolled away and we are set free forever because he is the perfect mercy seat that gives us eternal life with our Father. The stone has been rolled away, okay? Are you with me on that? That makes like some of us excited. Some of us, we're not so sure, but it goes on. It's good news. It gets better. I like it. I hope you like it too. Verse 13, they asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. You have got to catch the humor in this. She's talking to angels. And she has no concept, which is a reminder that you can be that heartbroken that you miss the supernatural grace of God all around your life. She is so hopeless. She's lost her hope. This is Mary. She had seven demons. Jesus set her free. He's dead. He's gone. She thinks it's over. She has no hope. Okay, can I ask you the same question the angels asked her? Why are you crying? You say, I'm not crying, bro. Okay. Why are you crying in here? Where have you lost your hope? Have you lost your hope in your marriage? Your kids? Your body? Your fear, your doubt, your worry, your anxiety? Maybe life just isn't what you thought it should be. I want to tell you today that he has seen your misery. He has heard your cry and he is concerned of your suffering, so he has come. And when it looks like all is lost, Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He's bringing you a resurrection. Hope is not a feeling. It's a person and his name is Jesus. And you don't have to look for hope because hope is looking for you. It goes on, verse 14, at this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I'll get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, Do not hold to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I love it. She's so heartbroken. Jesus is in front of her. She doesn't even realize it's Jesus. She thinks he's a gardener. And he says to her, what are you looking for? And she mumbles and frets because she's not even sure what she's looking for. Okay, can I tell you? I think Jesus, the great gardener of our heart, is asking us the same question today. What are you looking for? Because every person in this room is looking for something. I don't care who you are, you're, you're looking for something. Maybe you're looking for success. So you'll perform or achieve to get that success. Maybe you're looking for beauty. You need to look a certain way and make people think a certain thing about you. Maybe you're looking for approval. So you'll do whatever you can to get the acceptance of others. Maybe you're looking for finances. You'll sell out at all costs to get some more money. Maybe it's breakthrough. Maybe it's, I don't know. What are you looking for and where are you looking for it? I mean, if you just look at the people in the Bible, they were all looking for something too. Like the woman at the well, she's looking for acceptance. See, she's been married five times. She's living with a sixth man. She's just looking for it in the wrong place. The woman caught in adultery in John 8, caught red-handed by religious people. They take her out of the situation, throw her in front of Jesus. They want to stone her. She's just looking for love. She's just looking in the wrong place. Or how about Zacchaeus? The Bible says he's a short guy. He's got some challenges in his life. He just wants to be significant. So he's going to make a bunch of money, become a tax collector, get a bunch of power and authority. Peter, Peter is looking for life. He's just holding an empty fishing net, trying to build this failing business. The Pharisees were looking for righteousness. They just thought it was in keeping the law. They were all looking for something. They were just looking for life among dead things. 
And so are we. And while you're looking for who knows what, Jesus is looking for you. Mary was looking for Jesus' dead body while the resurrected Jesus was looking for her. That's why Luke 19.10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save which was lost. He wants to seek you. He has a desire to find you and save you. He wants to heal you and make you whole. That's why John 15, he says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. Like, hey, he says, I picked you and I want you to have a fruitful life full of beauty, sweetness, nourishment, and productivity. Or how about Adam and Eve? When they choose the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they run and they hide, and it's God who comes looking for them in the garden. And what I love is that what Eve lost in the first garden, Jesus is restoring in this garden. He is always right in front of you. You just don't see him. He's in your marriage, your job, your hobby, the air you breathe, the life you live. The grace of God is always right next to you. We just don't always see it. And so what I want to tell some of you today is, is that you're not here because you're looking for Jesus. You're here because Jesus is looking for you. And you don't have to look for something when you start to realize someone is coming for you. So he says her name, Mary. And the moment she hears her name, she turns. She sees him. She realizes it. And she's full of faith, hope, and love because when God says your name, everything changes. And I love what he says. Go tell my brothers, the disciples. <laughs> I wish you would have stopped him and said, you sure you want to be brothers with Peter? Because I, I don't. You know? <laughs> Go tell my brothers. He put himself on their plane. That I'm going to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, he says, it's time to come home. I think God is calling your name today and saying to you, it's time. Jesus, the ultimate mercy seat, will call your name and interrupt your life to say, it's time to come home. 1 John 1, 12, to all who received him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 6, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. All we have to do anymore is believe and receive what Jesus did. We don't have to perform. We don't have to achieve. And because the stone has been rolled away, we can never be held accountable for what Jesus has already paid in full. The law cannot charge us what it has already charged Jesus for because that's called double jeopardy. And it can't do it because it charged Jesus. All you have to do is believe it and receive it. And you get resurrected life. Now, let me close with this. Do you remember the story of when Peter walks on water? It's got to be one of the greatest stories in the Bible. I love it. Jesus takes the disciples. He puts them in a boat. He sends them out into the sea. He hangs back. And they row for a few hours, and they're out in the middle of the sea, and all of a sudden this big storm develops. It's a reminder that Jesus sometimes sends you into the storm. Sometimes he sends you into the storm to expose what's in here, and sometimes he sends you into the storm so you'll take your eyes off yourself and look to him the way, the truth, and the life. And they're kind of panicking and freaking out, and here comes Jesus, cool and nonchalant, walking on the water. He's going to walk by their boat, and they think it's a ghost, and they're kind of freaking out, and they're not sure, and Peter's like, maybe it's Jesus. He's like, Lord, and the only way Peter goes, if it's you, tell me to come. Okay, Peter, come on. One foot. Two feet. Third step. Had to have been the most exhilarating moment of Peter's life. Because he's not just walking on water, you get it? He's walking on the storm. And all he's doing is looking at Jesus. And I love what it says. It says, when he saw the wind and the waves, he began to sink. 
The moment he took his eyes off the simplicity of Jesus and looked at all the things around him, he began to panic and he began to sink. Okay, can I just tell you? I think a lot of us sitting in this room today, we have taken our eyes off the simplicity of Jesus and we're beginning to sink. And so we're panicking. And the wind and the waves, they're real. And they come. That marriage crisis. The issue with our kids. Doubt. Worry. Anxiety. Financial issues. Religion. The speed of life. And the faster they come, the more we panic. And the more we panic, the more we begin to sink. And just like you can't walk on water without Jesus, you can't do this life without Jesus. That's Mary's problem. You get it, right? She's so focused on the circumstances around her, she's missing Jesus right in front of her. She's lost the simplicity of life in Christ. And if I'm honest with you, maybe over this last season I have too. Because the wind and the waves are real. And the bigger they get, And the more they howl and the harder they hit you, the easier it is to look at them and panic when all the while Jesus is saying, just look to me. And he is just waiting for us to reach out our hand and he will grab us. And what I love is is that Jesus doesn't rebuke us. He rebukes the wind and the waves. But he won't rebuke the wind and the waves until you reach out to him because he wants to let you be desperate because desperation drives you to your deliverer. So it's actually his grace at work in your life. Let's not lose the awe and the wonder of Jesus. It's a simple story, and we hear it every year. Jesus came to this earth. He took on humanity. He was perfect in every way. He faced every temptation you faced, but he overcome. He knows what your pain and your sorrow and your struggles are like. He died on the cross, was buried in the tomb for three days. It looked like the law had won because the law judged him on our behalf. But then Jesus rolled away the stone because he fulfilled the law for us. He resurrected from the grave, and now he offers us new life with him forever. The truth is, is that God is good. Jesus has forgiven you. You are loved, and everything is possible. Maybe you've forgotten. Maybe you've never heard. Either way, Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. And so let's not lose the simplicity of the life we have in Jesus, because you don't have to look for hope, because hope has come to look for you. Because hope is alive. So will you close your eyes with me? And maybe just let me ask you this question today. Is your heart full of awe and wonder of Jesus? And if you're anything like me, I I would guess the answer to that is, uh, we don't even want to answer it if we're honest. This Easter, what I think Jesus is doing is he's calling your name and he's calling you home and he's saying, don't lose the simplicity of the life you have in me. And maybe you're here and you've never put your faith or your trust in Jesus. Maybe you went to church a million times as a kid. Maybe you've said a prayer in the past. Maybe you've done all these religious things. Maybe you've tried harder, behaved better, strived more. And the more it feels like you do that, the more skeletons pile up in your closet. Okay, then today's your day. Today's your day to say, Jesus, I believe and receive. 
If that's stirring in your heart, you just reach out to God and pray something like this. Jesus, I receive you. I believe that you died, not just for me, but as me. That you were judged by the law, the Ten Commandments, all the things that I break and can't keep myself. You paid for all of that. And so I'll never have to pay for it again. And in you, Jesus, my sins are forgiven and I rise to a new life of hope with you. And so, Lord, I respond and receive you calling my name because I want to come home. I don't want to live in the wind and the waves anymore. I want to run to your arms, to my Father who now loves me and accepts me because of the new resurrected life we have in Christ. And for the rest of us, I pray, that the spirit of the living God would ignite back within us the awe and the wonder of a childlike faith. That Jesus, the God of the universe, loved you so much that he came to die so you would live. May we never lose the wonder of the simplicity of the life we have in Christ. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for setting us free. In your name we pray.